I showed up at graduate school all psyched about Frederick Jackson Turner and westward expansion, and I find out that my, my people, the Western historians, are at war with themselves over this interpretation. And um, social history had come into Western history more and more, and people were saying, you've left out women, you've left out people of color, that, that story doesn't do justice to uh, the interactions with American Indians in the West. And once I was uh, a little bit crestfallen that my hero had been knocked off his pedestal and also fascinated at, wow, there are a bunch of stories here that I, I kind of was aware of but hadn't paid attention to. And it was uh, sort of an opening of my eyes to blind spots that I'd had, which continues to this day. I'm still working on those things. Uh, but the more I dug into it, and even though it complicated the story, and and I guess in some ways of looking at it maybe took some of the luster off it. It made it all the more interesting to me that there were these things you can just keep digging, peeling away layers of onion, and there's more and more and more and more. Um, so I, I've just been taken with it from reading about it, encountering it in person, and then the more I dig into the history of it, the more fascinating it is. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED. Myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on the podcast button. You can go through and download this episode and other episodes through all the different platforms, even listen to it on the actual website. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet and need to be connected with a trusted professional, go to the homepage, click find a trusted professional. And even if it's not in Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, we will make sure you get connected with somebody that can help you with your financial interests. But today, we're more interested in the podcast with esteemed guests like Dr. Todd Kurtzetter. How you doing, sir? Very well. Glad to be here, finally. We've tried, I don't know how many times to arrange this. and yeah, since I started it. COVID, <laughs> COVID kept getting in the way, and now it's out of the way. So I'm glad to be here. And thank yeah. you for sticking sticking with it. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. You know me. I'm like bubble gum on your shoe. You're not going to get rid of me, right? So I, I, I've been after it. And uh, we'll dive into who Todd is and, 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 and the value he's going to bring on the show. But as always, I've got to do my joke that now inherently annoys my father-in-law and wishes that I would stop. And I thought this one was pretty fitting for the conversation we were just having about colleges. How do you know that you have been in college way too long? I don't know. Your parents are running out of money. Oh. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and that just, you know, for the purpose of the conversation with talking about uh, with, with my daughter having a very good time in college right now. Uh, so... For the audience, uh, Todd and I know each other because I was his student as an undergrad at TCU. Now, uh, you might be looking at me as saying, well, Span, if you're almost half a century old, how old does that make Todd? What actually makes Todd about the same age as me because I was older when I went to TCU to get my formal education, which was a quite different experience, I think, not only for me, but maybe even for the professors because most students are traditional students of 18 to 22 years old. And then here's this old guy in his 30s that had been in the Marine Corps, was a 
police officer and working midnights and doing all this. So we'll jump into all that. But uh, uh, Todd, your your class made a impact on me that you and I have kept in touch for even after graduation now would be 15 years. Something like that. Yeah, 15 years. And you're still at TCU. Right. Still a professor in the history department. Right. Uh, are you still torturing people with stacks beyond stacks of not small books, but very large books that didn't even have big letters? They had little letters with big books. And not many pictures. Not many, not many <laughs> pictures. Like literally on the cover, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, still, uh, the, the books are a little bit smaller and the stack's a little bit smaller. I think I've adjusted to some of the feedback you've given me. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still harassing students. And, and every semester on my evaluations, uh, the one thing I can count on from multiple students is less reading. Less reading, too much reading. <laughs> so for the audience is, I was uh, a transfer student into TCU from the junior college. And they had based my um, academic uh, curriculum off of being a traditional student. And some things had changed in my degree plan that apparently, as it turns out, when I went to do my intent to graduate at the end of year four, uh, that I was short 18 hours that my advisors were not aware of. And I was at TCU on a full academic scholarship. So I was like, oh, man, now i got to come up with money. And I got another. I mean, I was literally working from 8 at night to, to 6 in the morning as a patrol officer, going home showering and then going to class and being at school all day long. Because as we know, in college, all the classes line up and be on the same day back to back. Right. And so I was in class till between one and three each day to go home, sleep three, four hours, get up and wash, rinse, repeat that I was like, oh, man, like what 18 hours am I missing? And they were 18 hours of high level classes, not like, hey, let's go learn about this basic course on math or whatever else. And uh, so the they extended my scholarship, paid for my summer class. I did a, a summer class and I had five high level classes for that final semester, which was, I think I'd rather have been waterboarded in Guantanamo Bay than, than to enter into that. But I wasn't going to give up. I wanted to get the full effects out of everything. And then, of course, I get to talk to class who not just has a stack of books, but one of them was the width of a tire on a vehicle, Titan, and uh, and it, which still sits on my shelf to this day. And uh, but I, I I I got a great great experience uh, learning from you, learning learning how to learn and how to look at things in, in different perspectives. And so that had an impact on who I would become, um, and, and, and actually I attribute having great professors like you is the reason I am successful today because it allowed me to step out of my own way and look at things from different perspectives. Well, that's terrific. Thank you. And, yeah. and I want to say part of what I have appreciated uh, about you and one, uh, that you stayed awake despite that schedule. <laughs> I, I don't remember you ever falling asleep in class. And I know that's not because I was particularly exciting, but you hung in there. Um, and I also appreciated how you, even at that time, embraced learning. You were hungry for it and took it on and tried stuff that was maybe uncomfortable or, un, I don't know, about unple unpleasant and like you know, that, that book. Um, and really embraced the spirit of trying stuff out and keeping an open mind. 
And I know darn well some of that stuff you didn't agree with, but you wrestle with it and talk about it and uh, appreciated it. And it, a lot of the students don't get much farther than, golly, too much reading. It's like, I got tired of this. But occasionally, some will sink their teeth into it and wrestle with it and appreciate it and acknowledge that. So I've, I've been grateful the whole time I've known you that, that you did that and would express that. So thank you for that. Yeah. And you said something that was really important is, you know, we, we, we're very fortunate to live in a country where it's okay not to agree. Right. At least it used to be. Well, you, yeah, it used to be. It seems a little more extreme in current climates, but, but it was. And, and, and that was, and that's what I didn't know then was I was actually developing a level of business acumen that would help me become more successful because it was like, hey, are you going to pigeonhole yourself into something just because it's uncomfortable and you don't agree with it? Or are you just going to lean into it and try to learn and try to understand the other side of it, which I would later learn would help me open up lines of communication, especially when things are getting difficult, especially like you and I were talking about this significantly large deal that I'm working on right now. And I mean, man, I mean, it's you're, you're having to see the perspectives of both sides. And, and it does get very, a matter of fact, I've haven't slept in six weeks. I mean, I, I, by fact, if I have any hair left and it, it's going to be amazing by the end of this week, but it was, you know, but being able to learn how to do that, but also be able to go, okay, this is what the other side's perspective is. Let me just not read it and ask some questions. Let me go take that further and go research and try to understand the why behind the perspective. And an example I would give that as present day is if you were going to build a 200 square foot deck on your house a year ago, you would have spent $900 on lumber. And if you were to build that same deck today, you're going to spend $4,000 on that same amount of lumber. And people can go, okay, yes, it costs three times more, but can anybody tell you why? And everybody wants to blame the mills and they want to blame everybody else. But have they dove in to really truly understand why did lumber become more expensive and Will it eventually become down and what things need to take place to be able to have that median where the lumber mills can make money at the same time the builders can also make money where they're both making money together, where one's not losing over the other because we can't find a way to come together and, and do that. So when someone says, what am I going to get out of a history class at TCU? Well, let me just tell you, I just gave you a great example of what and where I learned how to be able to do that. Right. And, and another thing I appreciated about having you in class was that you were non-traditional. And TCU students are great. I mean, the, the bulk of them, but most of them are 18 to 22-ish. And that comes with upside and downside. And I had uh, cut my teeth teaching at a big university at Nebraska. And the classes there were a lot more diverse demographically and otherwise. And it really helps to have somebody with some mileage in class, somebody who's been around, had to work, been in the Marines, been a cop. Um, so I, I think bringing that perspective is really helpful. I think it helped you deal with the material the way you did. And the other thing I love about having vets and other non-traditional students in class is they they rub off on the other students frequently and uh, can, can show an appreciation of how things are going and why how things fit together. And I think that mileage helps them make those kind of connections that you just talked about in that different example. So what, what, let's, let's go back in time of 
you know, where you come from and how you got to where you're at and at what point did you go, I, I know that I, I, I want to be in education and I want to be able to, or even was it, you know, some people, sometimes things happen by accident. Sometimes it happens from the age of two. They know that's what they're going to, so what about you? Where, where you come, where did all this start? Boy, this might go on. This is a long story. It did not, <laughs> did not happen from when I was You're two. talking about me, man. I mean, yeah. I, I, there's no longer story than me talking. <laughs> True. Um, it did not happen since I was two. And in fact, my experience growing up, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, or the suburbs outside of Cleveland. Um, and both my parents are teachers or were teachers. And there were some things I always liked about that career. Like mostly in the summer times, we could go do great vacations. At least we had the time to go places. I didn't have a lot of money to stay at the top-notch plate, you know, resorts or whatever. But we could go, and I appreciated the time that they had. And I could see um, that they could use that time to spend with the family and to do things. Uh, but I also remember my dad coming home. He was a high school teacher with a big stain on his shirt one day um, and told the story of how he'd been on lunch duty and got hit with an orange. <laughs> so I was like, mm, no, that's that's not going to be it. Uh, so I went away to college and didn't know, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do and took aptitude tests and um, so on in high school and in college and st still didn't know and was a political science major. I chose that because I thought, oh, that'll be practical. That'll help me with law school because I think I want to be a lawyer. Um, and found out towards the end of uh, my undergraduate years that I just couldn't stand political science, at least most of it. And it was too late to do what I really wanted to do, which was be a history English double major. And then college was over and they kicked me out and I had just kind of figured it out. So I think it's a variation on the story you mentioned that it's like you just felt kind of clueless or it's like, oh, what? I don't, have, I don't have a grasp of anything. And somebody said, well, yeah, it's a sign you're done, you're ready. Um, and then I did things like take graduate school tests almost at random with no preparation. And it wasn't random. I took all of them. I took the, except the MedCat, MCATs. I took the GMAT, the GRE, the LSAT. And I thought, this is going to show me the way. If I don't prepare for these, I'll take these and It'll show me what graduate school to go to. And you, I found out it's a really bad idea to take <laughs> especially the, the law school test without any kind of practice or preparation. Uh, and my scores reflected that. Um, the GRE, not so much. had blew the doors off that, which I guess in a way um, was sort of helpful and did help me get into graduate school. But I didn't know in what. So I, after they kicked me out and said, you're done <laughs> with, with school, um, did a lot of different things and bumped my head in a lot of sort of failed attempts at things that I thought I was interested in. I waited tables, which I came to really dislike and gave me a great appreciation of the people who do it and try to be kind to them. I uh, worked in a sandwich shop, which was a tremendous postgraduate education. It was a place very much like a subway, but it's not the subway. And what I learned in there is I didn't want to work in a restaurant, for one thing, and I got a great life education in the stuff that went on in the back of the restaurant, where bookies were coming and going and drugs were being dealt. And I found out, I won't go into too much more detail about that, <laughs> but I was introduced to things I had not been introduced to in other stages of my life, uh, but it kept me going and it was 
great because I could eat at the restaurant and that took care of part of my food budget. Um, did freelance writing because I thought, oh, I'll be a journalist and I did eventually do that a little bit. Played in a rock and roll band, thought, oh, I'll be a rock star and found out that's a long, tough row to hoe. And also I wasn't good enough <laughs> to do that. Um, so got in, I was a, a the journalism thing looked like a legitimate, decent profession, and I was really wound up because everybody I was in college with went straight to medical school or law school or graduate school in engineering. I had a couple of buddies who were ROTC, and they you know, had careers, and I was like this misfit floating around, uh, bumbling through life, and really liked journalism and, and did that for a while, worked for a couple little newspapers. Uh, but there was all through these, and it took me four or five years of this, mucking around to figure out what was going on. And it really bothered me. Uh, this is a little bit <clears throat> embarrassing to admit that, that that first and second and third and fourth May and June rolled around and I had to keep going to work and work on other people's hours that it's like, my dad didn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and the journalism thing, as interesting as it was, the hours were crummy and the pay wasn't so good. I really admire the profession. Uh, and then I got a job doing PR for a university and use, was able to use that writing background and got back onto a college campus and kind of the light went off. It's said, this, this is the life, uh, but I don't want to do PR. Um, so I decided at that point, use that good GRE score and I, in my heart had wanted to do history. And, and especially I was interested in cowboys and Indians to be simplistic about it. So I said, I'm going to go take a shot at that and see if I can, one, I'm going to go study it because I want to and I have the time and I can uh, and see if I can put a put together a career at a college or university doing what I want on a schedule that I like very much. And then uh, ended up at the University of Nebraska, which turns out is a good place to go study cowboys and Indians and spent seven years in graduate school. Um, and then we, there are some components of this we can talk about more later, maybe, uh, if it's appropriate. But um, things lined up, and I did what I was supposed to do and was lucky in a way also that uh, I got an offer to come down to TCU and teach. And it's like, there it goes. And it's been terrific. I've, I've loved it. What year was that that uh, you came to TCU? Uh, I started in 1997. 1997. Wow. I didn't. I guess I didn't realize that it had been because yeah, that was 2006. So you'd already been there when I got to your class. You'd already been there about nine years. Yeah, and I, I, I went away for one year because the yeah. the first job I had was a temporary position. Okay. So I was there for a couple of years. I got a tenure track position at another school. Left, and right when I left, uh, the guy who taught my specialties retired. So I'm up there packing, unpacking at this other location and, and settling into a school, which was great. Um, but I was like, golly, there's a chance to go back to TCU, but I just came from there. And what's it going to be like applying for that job after I just took this one? Uh, and I'm glad I did. Because fortunately, I made a good impression while I was there. I behaved myself and did what I was supposed to, uh, competently, apparently. Uh, so they took me back. And so then that was fall of 2000, came back and have been there since. So what, what, what was it about TCU that drew you to TCU? Well, the first time around, just a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about this. You're going to pay me? 
And it pays more than journalism? Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> and, and that was something that blew me away about graduate school. Even though the pay was low, uh, and I had a teaching assistantship, which you get your tuition covered and you get a stipend on top of that. I think I started at 5000 a year. Um, but as I was looking at it, it's like, they're paying me to read history books. I'll, I'll do that. Um, but coming back to TCU, uh, the market, even then, uh, for academics and college professors was horrific. I think TCU was maybe the 65th application I had sent out. Um, so I was uh, great. I got a job and then I got there and I couldn't believe how lucky I was because my interest is the American West and <laughs> Fort Worth is where the West begins. I found out very quickly after I subscribed to the newspaper here uh, and read other stuff and the stockyards is here and the Eamon Carter Museum and it's just a godsend to be interested in the history of the American West and end up in a job in Fort Worth where there's all this wonderful stuff intimately tied to the history of the West. Uh, and then to take that a step further, uh, the only reason I left was because I had a temp essentially a temporary job and the offer of a permanent tenure track job, is, which is what you want as an academic, because it's... Explain, explain what that means to the audience is tenure Thank track. You. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had what was called an instructorship, or my title was instructor at TCU. That's a year-to-year -year contract, like most people. Um, and I, my, I tell my brother about this and he just rolls his eyes because he works in the real world and can be let go at will. Um, so there are some p faculty positions that are year to year contracts or adjuncts think that they're hired for a semester or maybe a year, short term employment. Tenure track jobs are long term and uh, they start off with a, usually a five to seven year probationary period. And it's like a five-year tryout. So they evaluate your teaching. They come visit you in the classroom. Um, you have service expectations that you need to meet. And then the big one at most schools is publications and scholarship. So in that probationary time, you at least in history, the, the benchmark usually is you need to publish a book, a, a peer-reviewed monograph. Um, that you have shows you have made a contribution to the profession and to learning and can succeed in creating scholarship. And if that comes out and everything else lines up, you're granted tenure. And that means you're basically locked in for life. There, there are ways that the university uh, or the employer can terminate those contracts, but it's difficult. And there are certain things I could do to end that, <laughs> commit a crime or, you know, other other things we won't go into, but it's really hard to get rid of somebody who's tenured. Um, and the idea behind that is it's supposed to free up the faculty to be willing to pursue the truth and express unpopular opinions that might get them into trouble or an employer might fire them for. And I think maybe it's getting a little bit more uh, relevant in the climate we're in now where it's like, wow, gosh, if I, I, I do this research and it shows, trying to think of an example, shows something about, I don't know, COVID's a hoax. That's yeah. probably a bad example. Um, but if, if, if you've got good reason and, and good research to take a point of view or even just to, I guess, try to educate students, 
the faculty or the, excuse me, the university can't let you go for having an unpopular or politically um, volatile opinion. So it's, it's supposed to create an atmosphere in which scholars feel free to pursue truth and knowledge as as they see it. Okay. So it's like the mafiosa. Kind of. Once you're in, do they do like a special ceremony where you, you burn a saint, a picture of a saint, <laughs> rub your hands, do the little pin prick on the finger with the blood and no. make an oath that you're you're there till you die? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was sadly anticlimactic. <laughs> They're like, welcome. Here's your packet. Because <laughs> yeah, by the time you go through this and you have to submit this big portfolio of all the stuff you've done in that probationary period. And if you get to the point where you're submitting it, you basically know you've got your ducks in a row and there typically are not any surprises at that point. Um, so, and that's usually year six. And then in year seven, they, the university spends time reviewing it and they send that portfolio out to uh, scholars at other schools for independent review. And they gather all this stuff up. And if that lines up, you, you make it. So you, I got a letter at one point from the university, but at that point I basically knew it was going to happen. And I, I kind of wish there was a little sacrifice or burning. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the sacrifice is by that time you've been so beaten into doing what you're supposed to do. It's like, <laughs> you're on the conveyor belt and uh, conforming to professional standards. So what percentage of professors at TCU would you speculate are tenured or on wow. the tenure track? Is it most 50? of them. Is it most? Yeah. And, and better than half, I'm sure. Yeah. And th there's a, a debate about that. A lot of administrators would like to get rid of it because, you know, we go through something like we just did this past year with COVID and they've got all these people, they're locked into hiring and it's really hard to get rid of them. It, it's difficult. So it's a uh, line but, item budget deal for the administrators. Yeah. And you may, there's a, a conception sometimes that people will get tenure and they don't do anything after that because you can't get rid of me. Um, that's pretty rare, though. Or somebody screws up and or is a pain in the neck and you can't get rid of them. Um, but usually by the time people have jumped through that hoop, they're, that's part of why the hoop is so difficult and why it lasts for five to seven years is like you really size up these people that you're going to make this commitment to. And going back to your question, what's the percentage at TCU? I'm well over half. I'm a little bit uh, embarrassed. I don't know that number. But I think there's a benefit to that, to to the students and to the education, because you've got these people who are long-term committed to the university. The university's got a long-term commitment to them. Um, they, uh, at this point in their careers, and, and I think at this point, I'm spending as much time working on my teaching as I am on my scholarship, trying to give a better and better product to the students in, in my classes. Um, and I'd like to think with the benefit of 20, I started teaching at college level 1993. So I'm coming up on almost 30 years of that. And you get better and better with practice and you get better and better. I think the more you learn and research and do things. So if you've got this long-term commitment to the faculty, uh, I think it brings benefits to the students and the quality of the, of the education. So... When you were at the other universities, what were the sizes of the classrooms? Were they similar to TCU or were they larger? Much bigger. Yeah. Um, the very first class I taught as a graduate teaching assistant had 90 in it. I've never had a class at TCU close to that. And I also yeah. had classes of 125. Um, so at state schools especially, they can be pretty big. 
at TCU, I don't think I've had a class bigger than 40, and that's an intro-level class. And at some big schools, you might have three or 400 students in a big auditorium in, in a comparable class. And there's and some people that's fine for, but I think one of the benefits of TCU is I can do a better job with 40. Uh, this past semester, I had two classes that had 13, and that was mostly because of COVID. We had, could only have so many people in the classroom. But man, those those 13 person classes were like graduate seminars. I really got to know each of those students. Uh, I could work with them. I spent a lot of time on the work that they did. Uh, and they, uh, as far as I can tell, really appreciated that. Uh, the circumstance was they appreciated it being in person when a lot of their other classes weren't. But I think they really got something out of being in those much smaller classes. And that's I think one of the benefits of TCU, it's one of the benefits of paying that tuition there, is if that's the kind of learning style that suits you, you get a lot of personal attention that you wouldn't necessarily get at some other places. Yeah, I know that was very good for me because I'm ADD like a squirrel on methamphetamines anyways, where I didn't want to be in something where I was just a number. I mean, I actually wanted to to, to learn. And um, one of the things I... I I, I picked up on quickly at TCU is when I mean, the relationships you can develop with your professors by taking advantage of office hours, right? Where as I'm sure you've seen is you have some students that never even check the syllabus to see that there were office hours. And then some that were like me, <laughs> that again, is like bubble gum on your shoe. You can't get rid of me. And I was in there like, Hey, why is this? Like, okay, I get it. You, you know, I, I got the grade that I got, and but these are the comments you put in there. But why? Help me understand. I wasn't doing it to be argumentative. I was doing it because I was like, help help me understand why. Why why is this this way? You know, even if it was something grammar-wise, like, no, you can't write a paragraph like that or, or whatever it was. And that's what I really enjoyed was being able to go and, and understand more behind it, right? Because it was always that push to get better or right. push to learn more. And, and, I, and I did enjoy it. And I actually enjoyed knowing the names of the people that were, you know, in the audience with me, right, uh, that, that were learning. And not just that, but, you know, as far as study groups or something that if I disagreed with another student where it, it was like, you know, I could have taken the perspective of like, look, man, I got a decade on you. You don't know what you're talking about. And they could just look at me and be like, you're old. You don't know what you're talking about. But I enjoy being able to get together and go, help me help me understand what, why you see it this way. And and I'm going to be willing to understand your perspective as long as you respect some time to try to understand my perspective as well. And sometimes my perspective didn't change. Sometimes my perspective didn't change, but I understood the other perspective. Sometimes it was a hybrid of in the middle. And then sometimes my perspective actually took a different turn of like, wow, I never really thought of it that way. Because, you know, someone that has, you know, 10 years of difference in the environments that we grow up in, grow un- grow up under a different set of tools, right? Um, you know, from when guys like you and I grew up where access was the Encyclopedia Britannica, but now someone can Google on their phone, what you know, whatever they're trying to get access to, just as long as they can verify <laughs> the source of it, and and you know, or you know, n- you know, like now, you know, you're growing up with a smartphone in your hand when 
you know, we were like, oh, wow, what's this pager thing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it was just that different perspective that helps you understand. And I think I think that, that comes back to what you and I have alluded to, to as well as, you know, there's a lot of turmoil, not just in the world, but in this country right now. And, and I think one of the things that leads to that turmoil is that people stop trying to understand each other's perspectives. And in that, which means if they're not trying to understand each other's perspectives, it means they're not communicating. And if you're not communicating, it means they're digging their heels in the sand of, I'm right, you're wrong, instead of, hey, it's okay to disagree. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on that comment? Wow. There's right. a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> and going one thing that was stuck in my mind as you were talking about office hours, and I know that's not what you asked about there, but uh, one thing I would say, if you're a college student or you have a college student in your life, <laughs> um, go, go to office hours. Because even at a place like TCU, where I can spend a lot of time putting comments on a paper, I can't elaborate on those to the extent that I could in a conversation. And I know darn well, despite the fact that I try to be super clear in what I'm putting in there in terms of feedback and coaching, sometimes it doesn't come through or the student sees, what a C, and they don't pay any attention to it. But if you can come in and, and talk to the professor, they can explain that better and put them to work. They're there. Enough of that. Um, and the other thing, still working my way to that question, was you mentioned how much technology has changed. And from when I started, even in graduate school, I think that was the first time I had an email address was sometime in graduate school and sometime when I learned about what the internet was in a website um, to now where everybody's got a supercomputer in their pocket that's got more computing power than some of the early space capsules did. Um, that's really changed the way I go about teaching because it's not, it's, I mean, there's, you need to know how to find stuff. It's easy to find stuff easier to find stuff, but how do you deal with it? Is that good information? Is it reliable? How are you going to triangulate that or test it? And what do you what do you do with all the information that vomits out of that phone and then turn it into something? So it's changed how I've done that part of teaching. And uh, it's a lot more hands-on and active taking that information and, and trying to work with it and get, get some interpretive and analytical skills as well as memorizing when the revolution was or the constitution was signed um so finally going back to what was it you asked about yeah just <laughs> that, you know how we're, we're not we're, talking to each other yeah it just seems like the world's not talking with each other they're talking to each other not with each other and 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 it just feels like people aren't trying to understand other perspectives as much yeah i that and if had, you disagree with that, that's okay, because I disagree with a lot of things in your class anyway. So, I mean, this is your chance to return favor. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're onto something. I haven't seen it play out so much in classes so far. But I also don't know how much students are, you know, holding back and, and not speaking their minds because they don't want to get into a, a, an argument with people. Um, one of the things that is a little bit concerning to me is the atmosphere of, um, I guess, suspicion of elites, <laughs> which would be me mm -hmm. and, and you, for that mm -hmm. matter, but in, in a different way, I suppose. And we had an episode recently where a member of the board of trustees <laughs> at my institution um, made some comments in the media about the, the faculty being uh, liberal and if you don't 
toe the line on the socialist indoctrination that you're getting, you don't get the grade that you want, which just blew my mind. And I know that's out there. I've heard stories from some colleagues about some students kind of getting up in arms about that. Uh, but there's, I think, in, in certain circles, a lack of willingness to even look at those other perspectives. And as soon as they see something that's different or a threat to their perspective, walls go up and maybe there's even attacks about that. There's a, a website that will list dangerous professors that you need to watch out for and need to be, uh, I don't know, blackballed or harassed. That seems to have died down a little bit. Um, but it's made me think sometimes about what I'm going to assign in class. It's like, gosh, do I want to tackle that issue? Do I want to assign that book? Uh, and so far, I haven't haven't caved into that. But I, uh, with some trepidation, am doing some assignments. It's like, okay, is this going to get me in trouble? What kind of blowback am I going to get from this where uh, they're going to attack or uh, not accept the source or the perspective, even though I'm not, you don't have to agree with it. I just want you to look at it and see how it compares to this one, and let's work with it. So it, it's been, it hasn't changed my attitude or approach, but I can sort of feel the chill coming into the room. And for somebody who, if I didn't have tenure, I would definitely change the way I do some things in class. Wow. For fear of not stirring things up. And, um, and that's, that's really that's really interesting too because talking about the you know the perspectives is again yet another thing when you know I always get really annoyed and and I've got some of my closest friends that were like you know you don't need an education a college degree is not going to do anything for you blah 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 I look at him and I said man you get out of what you put into something and if you went to college and you didn't put anything into it to get anything out of it then yeah, I see why you have that perspective, but that really falls on you because yet another thing I learned from great professors like yourself was how to verify your data, mm. like, right? And that was, that, matter of fact, um, uh, I, I was thinking about this the other day when I knew you were coming on the show is um, uh, there was, I really expected to get a higher grade on something, right? And, and actually there was nothing wrong with the content that I had. You know, it was, yeah, but where's your, where's your source to support this, mm-hmm. right? And you'd even laid out in the project syllabus or which, whichever you're given is like, you need to make sure you have at least X, Y, Z here. And I hadn't followed, I'd followed some of the instructions, but not all of them. And, uh, and, uh, and I was a bit wound up, right? Like, wait, no. And here's why. And you're like, okay, well, you just articulated that really well. Why couldn't you put that in some footnotes with the verification? <laughs> And now, what what did that mean then to what does that mean now, 15 years later, in present day, is I have this incredibly large deal I'm working on. This has been three years in the works. This portion of it is only a, even though this portion is very large, it's a small portion of a larger picture of what's going on. And um, and there's a lot of people that, that are, there, there's some people that are going to be writing some very large checks with a whole lot of zeros and they don't just write those checks to be like, Hey, let me know how it goes. Right. So you better have verification of the supporting data of why this is a good financial move. And so I, I go in and I dive into the resources, whether it's looking at contracts, contracts, data, trailing years of data and all those things is certainly the people that we're dealing with now, 
understand and appreciate, you know, the the need and ability to go verify that. But I really learned that from it wouldn't make it made sense then, but wouldn't really make impactful sense till present day where I'm like, man, I'm glad I learned how to do that. I'm glad I learned how to ask questions to go, wait a minute, what where do I need to dive? You know, because some rabbit holes, that's all they are is rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. But there are some that lead you to something to go, whoa, wait a minute. Right. So, for example, on this significantly large deal, as I sent an email yesterday morning with well over 20 bullet points of everything that could go wrong after we take possession. Right. I, every, this is everything that I, I'm up on my dry erase board going, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? What are blind spots? What are pitfalls? And doing all that because do you kind of like an American Express card, right? Better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it, or not know after the transaction is done, right? So I, I, I attribute to my ability to research and dive in going back to my days of undergrad and that. And uh, uh, so I really do, for those younger or even older college students that are there now, if there's anything I can tell you is it might not make sense to you now, but at some point that's going to play a major role and you're going to be glad that you learned that skill set to be able to do that. Because especially in today's day and age where credibility is being attacked all the time, pretty hard to attack credibility when you got proof. Right. Right. That even played a part into my time as a detective because I promoted to become a detective after I graduated TCU. And trust me, you better be able to verify and prove things or else you just put a case together where the 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 criminal is going to go, you know, you know, get away, you know, in in a courtroom. So those those are definitely uh, some of the valuable skill sets that you didn't know then just how valuable those skill sets would become. Sure. And so I did have a great appreciation for you going, look, you know, your, your content's good. Your, your, your opinion, even though may agree or not agree with it is, is sound, but prove it. Right. There you go. Prove it. There, there's an ad for a liberal arts education. <laughs> and, and even something just as mundane as, you know, reading for detail and, and read the instructions carefully. And yes. Putting this deal together. Mm-hmm. You better have your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Oh, yeah. No. And it's a check that big. Uh, trust me, I'm being asked questions and I'm like, I, I don't even what, like, I, I understand most questions, but what? Why? <laughs> you know, but hey, listen, if it's going to help someone become more comfortable because they have the verification and proof and, and answers to the questions that they have in order to be comfortable with something this large, then then I understand that. I understand that perspective. And uh, and so let's let's tackle back a little bit to the American West. So what is it about the American West that just – because I know that's your passion, right? Only because I've known you for a long time. It, it is, you know, what was it about that that just drew you to it? Like what made you so passionate about this portion of history? Thank you for asking. And, and you didn't take that class. That's the best class I teach. <laughs> you, you got one of the, the B-team classes. I got the Industrial Revolution class, which yeah, was, yeah. by the way, awesome. Uh, yeah, Progressive Era, which has since yeah. been rebranded as Hellraisers and Robber Barons. A lot more students take it now. Oh, because it's got a really cool name. Yeah. Until <laughs> <laughs> they get there and they see the stack of books. <laughs> um, so the West is something um, I'll blame my parents for, again, uh, and 
and for reading to me when I was a kid. And I can't exactly understand why, but they, for one thing, read to me out of or got me reading both um, Little House on the Prairie books, which just fascinated me. The, the Laura Ingalls Wilder story. And beyond that, and I think because I showed interest in that, they hooked me up with uh, a, a novel about a kid who was about my age going west on the Oregon Trail and uh, what it was like being on a wagon train and running into Indians and the, uh, how weird the Great Plains were and trying to travel across this desert or you know, so it seemed, uh, grassland, huge grassland in, in a wagon train. So that stuff caught my imagination when I was little. And one of the blessings of having educator parents was um, probably I was 12 or 13. We packed up the car and went on about a month car vacation where we drove from Cleveland across Nebraska to Denver through the mountains. I went to Yellowstone, made it over to San Francisco, down the coast of California to San Diego, and then kind of up diagonally from there back to Cleveland. And I still remembered that trip in particular. Um, it's just being stunned by the landscape. Growing up in Ohio, which is kind of a forested place, it looks basically like New England. It's green and trees, and there's a lake right there by where I grew up. To go out and spend like two days driving at the speed limit across this grassland that was the plains and feeling exposed and tiny and amazed at what this landscape was. And then having a similar experience getting into the Rocky Mountains, like, holy cow, I think those were the first mountains. Well, I'd been to Appalachia before that, but um, the scenery and the scenery in Yellowstone and thinking about what it took for the United States to expand and for the settlers to go out there um, and start these cities and farmsteads in the middle of nowhere to me. Uh, and it was just awe-inspiring. A lot of it had to do with the landscape, and that's part of how I got – I write about water as well. But I'm really into environmental history and how does landscape and geography influence people and history. Uh, but it's – I think it's having seen that stuff up close and being so impressed by it and being impressed by the stories. And, of course, on the trip, every place we'd stop, my parents being teachers, we'd go to museums. I'd pick up books. Um, one was Log of a Cowboy by Andy Adams, which is a story about this guy on a cattle drive from Texas up to Nebraska and beyond. So that got me started on it. And then when I realized later that there was this whole, you could like create a, a, an academic program around that. And there were people who had written books on it and theorized about the West. Um, one in particular, a historian named Frederick Jackson Turner who's really outdated. He wrote about this in 1893 at the time or shortly after the frontier had supposedly closed and there was no more wild area to be settled. And his idea was that that process of the United States expanding westward and people coming into the contact repeatedly with wilderness and, as he called it, savagery, um, changed them and made a unique people that could be Americans and declare independence from the British and set up a democratic republic. Um, so I was just taken with that. And now I got to backtrack because I've been using a lot of uh, almost politically incorrect language and talking about this in a way that doesn't get at the fullness of the story. 
Uh, I showed up at graduate school all psyched about Frederick Jackson Turner and westward expansion, and I find out that my, my people, the Western historians, are at war with themselves over this interpretation. And um, social history had come into Western history more and more, and people were saying, you've left out women, you've left out people of color, that that story doesn't do justice to uh, the interactions with American Indians in the West. And then once I was uh, a little bit crestfallen that my hero had been knocked off his pedestal and also fascinated at, wow, there are a bunch of stories here that I, I kind of was aware of but hadn't paid attention to. And it was uh, sort of an opening of my eyes to blind spots that I'd had, which continues to this day. I'm still working on those things. Uh, but the more I dug into it, and even though it complicated the story, and and I guess in some ways of looking at it, maybe took some of the luster off it. It's made it all the more interesting to me that there were these things you can just keep digging, peeling away layers of onion, and there's more and more and more and more. Um, so I, I've just been taken with it from reading about it, encountering it in person, and then the more I dig into the history of it, the more fascinating it is. So, and, and one last thing, I, I got to yeah. throw this in, because this was part of my kind of awakening such as it is. Uh, my PhD program required that I demonstrate reading, tech, reading proficiency in two languages other than English. And I had some background in German, so I was able to tick that box, but I needed another one. And one of the dumb luck things about going to graduate school at Nebraska was they were offering instruction in Lakota, which is a Sioux Indian language. And I kind of had to ask around about this. I was like, well, we, we all, will, will you take that? Does it have to be French or Italian? Or something? It's like, no, especially if you're studying the West, this makes perfect sense. And that was one of the best experiences of my life, taking that language that um, opened my eyes in a lot of ways to how language can reflect really different cultural values. And one of the people who taught it was team taught by an anthropology professor and a woman who'd grown up as a fluent native speaker on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. I got to know her, got to know a different perspective on that. And through that was one of those things I came across. And it's like, well, this is going to be hard and it's going to slow, slow me down because I'm going to need to take four semesters of this language. But it was one of the best decisions I ever made for the reasons I said. And it also, and a lot of that was just, I'm only going to be here once in my life. There's this opportunity. I better grab it. But then, and it was interesting just on that level, but it also opened up the possibility of doing some research. And I found in the State Historical Society in Lincoln a, a run of newspapers that were printed in a, a dialect of Lakota that nobody had ever looked at because nobody speaks it anymore. So there's this treasure trove of documents that I could get into, um, and it gave me better marketability as a Western historian that I could bring this rare skill set to the table. Um, and it wasn't just theoretical. I was able to get a, a, one of my first big publications was because I had access and could use those sources. And I wrote an article about the Wounded Knee Massacre using those sources that nobody had ever been able to do because historians couldn't access the Dakota language uh, sources. So it had some practical applications, but I really just did it because it was interesting. And was, gosh, when am I going to have a chance to do this again? And it ends up being a, a really important 
part of my education and part of my life. But but that was something too that's like there's this exotic stuff in the West to me that um, just has always fascinated me. Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is even when I think I know someone really well, when I do this show, it unlocks things that I realize we have in common even more than what we had in common. And a, and a couple of key points was, you know, when you were talking about, you know, how language reflects, you know, culture, right? And uh, I've always been a big proponent of learning other languages. I've learned three foreign languages wow. myself. Uh Romanian, Mandarin, and Spanish. Wow. And, uh, yeah. It, it, easy it, it, ones. Oh, yeah. No, I picked the easiest ones right off the bat, right? Because I like to get off the beaten path because, like, I, I think if you know how to communicate with people, it's really important, right? And and then you can get off the beaten path because as, you, as you're able to communicate with people, then you can go try different cuisines because I think food tells a lot of history on that culture. So, it, and, you know, especially since Laura and I are avid travelers and, you know, when Maggie, before she went to college, we would take her all over the world and just go get off that beaten path to see, see things and taste things and like, hey, why, why this particular dish? What meaning does this have? Like we go do culinary tours, right? Like when, um, my daughter really got excited uh, when we were in uh, Budapest and we were on this all day tour right talking about this is what this particular food meant to the hungarian people and why it is still here you know so much further out from time and then um and then you know hearing you talk about you know the landscape and geography and how that affects migration Mm -hmm. is that is one of the major data points that I use in understanding trends in real estate is, you know, kind of going back to the lumber example is like, okay, people are moving here to Texas. They're moving to Florida. They're moving to Tennessee. But why? Right. And because uh, you're, it's one thing when a group of folks move or migrate because they want to be with people that are like-minded but when you start seeing all kinds of different perspectives and attitudes and everything moving to, you know, the three most migratory states, you have to go, why, why is this occurring? Is it because of natural resources? Is it because of jobs? Is it because of taxes? Is it because of any number of 50 different, you know, items to understand that? Because then if you can understand the migration flow with the supply and demand, of what there is in real estate, then you can try to understand why prices are going up. And you can also understand what availability of houses there are for people to go purchase. And so that's, that's a interesting, uh, another interesting thing, just hearing you talk about this, but you're, 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 you're talking about doing the road trip as I, I am almost done with this book called, um, uh, don't make me pull over. <laughs> Do you know what book I'm talking about? It's called no. Don't Make Me Pull Over, The Informal Story of the Family Road Trip by Richard, uh, it's R-A-T-A-Y. And so what year was it that you you, you did that month-long road trip? Oh, gosh. It must have been, it was 1976 because it was the bicentennial oh. year. Okay. So this is the peak in the book. And I know this because I was just listening to part of it when I was driving back to Colorado on Sunday is is right there in the mid seventies was the was the uh, peak of this. So uh, in the book, you know, it talks about how you know going into the history of the highway systems was mm. actually not meant 
for cars. It was actually meant for bicycles, well, according to this book. Well, some of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the early yeah. paved roads movement was yeah. – there was a big bicycle fad in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yes. But then the interstate system, which is where I was most of the time, was part of the defense in the Cold War. Yes. Yes. The book talks about that and Eisenhower going, hey, we're going to – complete this and then even the you know federal government state relationship of interstate highways and money that's involved in there for road improvements and and so forth and even um it 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 talks about the you know how this guy would literally get in his car like talking about the stuckies oh yeah i remember stuckies is uh um is it he would get in a vehicle and drive till he had to use the bathroom, and then that's where X marks the spot, and then go again until to to kind of estimate where these stops would be that evolved into giant fiberglass hot dog statues and all this other stuff to make it the attraction of the 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 you know the reason they came up with parks was because well landowners were tired of people just driving and camping out on their property because they were on a road trip and then how that added to the department of interior for infrastructure for these parks and and it just all these number of different things really a fascinating book to go hey this we we learn more about this and how a lot of the 70s what what took place in the 70s was when a lot of these things were happening because it was also when we were experiencing stagflation, right? Mm-hmm. And all these different things that were going on were the things that contribute to this aren't just, hey, we want to get in the car and go, but there was economics involved, you know, through this, business involved through this, the um, satisfying the the interest and hunger to learn about, like you said, Yellowstone and being able to go to all these different places where it, I think that now even after – getting through this book has given me that perspective to go, wow, you know, but that's really fascinating because where else can you be that you're not crossing, you know, port of entry checks to drive as many miles as you can in this great nation to go see so many different beautiful things. Right. If, if you haven't been to Yellowstone or the Grand Tetons, or you haven't, you know, been in rugged Montana during the middle of winter where you're looking at raw, untouched land that is covered in snow that some people have never even left the state, let alone the county or city they live in, to go to the northwest part of the U.S. to see something that is just absolutely magical and it just touches your soul, right? It sure got mine. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of made a profession in talking about it. <laughs> That's right. And, and speaking of bicycles, the, as dramatic as those car trips were, and I think there were three or four of them, that, that, the one that I mentioned was the most uh, – made the greatest impression. Uh, but going back to bicycles, as I was trying to figure out, you know, bumming through those awful different jobs uh, that I had – I ran into a guy who convinced me that we should quit our newspaper jobs and ride our bikes, bicycles from Myrtle Beach to Vancouver. And so I, all right, let's do that. And not only do you get the the sense of the travel and the awe, but traveling by bicycle or, or walking, and yeah. I know you're a hiker, uh, gives you a whole different connection with that landscape. And 
what it's like uh, riding into the wind or with a tailwind or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. And, and especially being in Texas where there's not a lot of elevation change, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, when you're up there in Colorado and you're going from 6,000 elevation up 12,000 elevation, carrying a pack and just understanding even how the human body responds to something like that, but getting true fresh air or like what I've experienced this last week is being up in Colorado with very good, cool weather that is dry. And then you get back here and it is hot and swampy and humid. (laughs) Like the other day, uh, maybe this is yesterday or the day before I was like, does it, does it seem like hot? In the house, because the AC says 73, and she was like, yeah, it's you're from here. Have you forgot? This is called Texas. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess you're I guess you're right. I want to I want to ask a question. And I realize that this question is a landmine. And and I and I and I always tell folks, look, if it's a landmine, you don't want to step on. I am totally OK with it. But, you know, me, I'm like the answer is always no, unless I ask. Right. Is. So with a lot of turmoil going on in this country right now and you being a an advocate of history, we're, we're, we're seeing some things now that I, I'm very conflicted on, meaning I, I, I have opposing opinions, not to the subject I'm going to ask about, but I can see both perspectives, but I'm, I'm torn of where I feel I should be on this is – History is history, right? Good, bad, or indifferent, good or ugly. And we're, we're seeing situations where a lot of statues are being taken down. Is you, you know, being, you know, a, a lifetime in history, from someone in your perspective, what do you, where do you, how do you feel when you see something like that? Or what is your take on it or professional take on that? Personal and professional. And yeah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Um, and I've had this conversation with a number of people, including my parents. And uh, one of the things that I think has helped me as a historian and teacher is they, my parents are diametrically opposed on things. <laughs> Got one, one's in one room watching MSNBC and Rachel Maddow and the other's in the other room watching Fox. And um, my mom in particular, it was really upset about the statue stuff. And, and I did a, 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 an assignment at the very beginning of class. I think it was two two years ago. Um, it was the summer when the Charlottesville thing had been going on and when statues had been being removed. And I threw some of the news stories uh, at the students and asked them to, to think about this and put together the arguments for each case. And um, I can't remember if I asked them to take a, uh, a stand on which one they preferred, but I wanted to bring that up because it's important and it's related to what I do in terms of what gets remembered about history. What history do we tell? How do we tell it? Um, should we tell it certain ways? Have I gotten you to forget the question yet? <laughs> so it depends. It depends on the statue and the, the and the process. And I'll back into this, I guess. With uh, we're de- we're dealing with this at the TCU campus. I don't know if you're aware of that. There's a statue of the founders, Addison and Randolph Clark, who were Confederate soldiers. And it has come up. There are some students who are upset by that. And TCU is going through something called the Race and Reconciliation Initiative, where they're addressing their passed as an institution that was founded by Confederate veterans, as an institution that was segregated until I think the 60s. Um, So African-Americans couldn't attend in the the Jim Crow South. And and what do we do with that? And I think they have taken a 
I, I like the approach they've taken. They didn't tear down the statue. They left it up there. And I, and, and, but they're using it as a teaching moment. They're going to put a display up. There's already a text up there about who these guys were and what's going on. And I think in a case like that, you can appreciate what these guys did beyond their days as Confederates and how they made a contribution to education and were in some ways really progressive. It was one of the first places that women could get an education. So you, as I see it, you got to in some ways go back into time when these things happened and um, deal with these people under the terms in which they lived and the times in which they lived. So I'm only at the edge of the landmine. <laughs> There are other statues I don't mind seeing come down. And some of this, I think, I realize has come from who I am and where I came from. I grew up in Ohio. I grew up in a town that has a Civil War monument in its town square and its, its town park. And it's a Union soldier who commemorate, the, the, I think it was Perryville, Chickamauga, and I forget what the other battles are where people from my hometown in the 1850s went out and, and fought. So the, the Confederate ones... I typically don't have too much trouble taking those down. Here's why. And some of this is personal, I guess. But historically speaking, um, some of those guys were traitors, as I see it. They were fighting against the United States. They seceded. They were fighting against the Union they're fighting against the army of the United States. I understand that they founded their own country and that there's a certain kind of patriotism that goes with that country. Um, but I kind of have a problem with memorials to traitors, as I see it. Then you get that, – that's at the most – at one level. Then you get into how does it tie into slavery and what's it mean to have Confederate monuments up. Uh, and that's problematic in other ways, as I see it. Um, and I wish, I wish I knew this, had known this question was coming. One of the best. I, I did not plan it. Yeah. You know me; it just things pop in my head. <laughs> and the reason I say that is one of the, the the speeches I saw that really affected me. And I thought the guy who gave the speech did a great job at laying out why he, he and his city was approaching these monuments the way he did. Um, was the ex mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrew. I thought he did a beautiful job explaining the situation as he saw it, why he was in favor of taking some of these things down. Um, and to keep talking about this, when I had the conversation with my mom, her point was, or what she was upset about was, they're erasing history. And I don't think that's the case. And I think there's something else you can do with that. You're, you're taking down a monument. Somebody at some point made the decision to put up a monument. And a lot of times those things were put up 40, 50 years after the fact when Jim Crow was really hitting hard and there was a lot of controversy about this. And I'm pretty sympathetic to the interpretation that those things were being put up. Sure, partly to commemorate the service, partly to commemorate soldiers. Um, but I think also there was a message there about who's in charge and how it's going to be and what's the social order. And I think Taking those down or taking those things down isn't erasing it. It's changing who, what you're going to remember, how you're going to remember it, what kind of history you're going to write. I don't have any objection to say putting them in a museum and say here's here's this thing and we used to have this up in town square and we took it took it down and put it here and here's why. Um, 
And it kind of goes, I think, in some ways to the nature of history that generations write and rewrite history. It's not history's history, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Kind of. <laughs> right. Um, it, it gets rewritten. It gets revised. It depends on the perspective of who's writing it. Um, and I think this generation is dealing with that stuff that's been sort of a third rail in ways. And in, in some ways, it hasn't been thought about. It was um, fascinating to me growing up in Ohio. I went to college in North Carolina. That was the first time I'd lived outside of the North. And people called me carpetbagger or Yankee. I was like, what? What's, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it didn't or even, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and I kind of had to think about it. Like a Yankee I got, easy mm-hmm. enough, carpetbagger. Carpet um, so there's, it, there's a lot of stuff out there still. Um, and now I think I've kind of wandered off point yeah. here. I, I should shut up because I want to hear <laughs> what's going through your mind. And, and, and no, and it's, those are those are those are those are those are very good perspectives. I'm awaiting a counterattack, right? And, and I realize, and I, and I and I realize, and I have a tendency to do that on this show. Is a question will form in my head, and I'll always preface it as, "Hey, look, this is probably a landmine, and don't want to," because I can understand that, right? Because because it is a very you can. Depending on who the audience is, it can be a very polarizing sure. topic, not just from one side, but from multiple sides, is the reason I've had a lot of conflict of wondering where I feel that I should sit on it is I, I go back to my own history, right? Um, and two points that I'll bring up. So Kevin Davis, who used to be uh, uh, at TCU, has since, since left. Very good friend of mine just came on to record his second episode this week. Is a six foot six tall black guy, and when we did his first episode, I was very open to go. Hey, listen, I I grew up in an area where the first black person I ever met was in the Marine Corps, right? And and so people can think whatever they want to think of me because of that, or make their assumptions or anything else, and then they go, you know, well, you're whatever. I'm like, well, why don't you call Kevin Davis and ask him what his opinion of me? Because really, if I don't know you, I don't care about yours. I care more about him, <laughs> right? you know, and what he thinks of me. Um, and so then fast forward to going into the Marine Corps, where a lot of people really want to romanticize what being in the military is, but I'm going to call it for what it is. I went in there. I was designed to be an instrument of war. I was designed to be violent. And if I wasn't violent, they were going to make me violent. And so that was a a large chunk of my life was to not only learn how to be violent, but be more violent than the opposing force so we don't lose. Right. Now, the interesting part is now I've been out 25 years and my wife and my daughter sometimes forget that part of me. Right. But then, you, you know, they, they'll sit there and like uh, an example I've used on a couple of these is because I've never really shown that side of me to. Well, I mean, it, it maybe had a little, you know, bullet points that came out with one boyfriend that my daughter had that I wanted him to understand who I was and where I came from. You he's no longer in the picture. That. Yeah, he's no longer in the picture. So apparently my articulation of my past really worked. Um, but um but my daughter is like, you know, dad's not, he, he's not scared of anything. And my, my, my wife would tell her, I mean, you'd be really surprised the funny things your dad is scared of, you know. And, um, you know, like say, like your 
dad is terrified of heights. When we're up on the ski lift up in Colorado and sometimes it stops and it sits there swinging, he doesn't say anything. And the average normal person would know that he's terrified, but I'm married to the man and I know what terrified looks like in that man. And I'm looking at her and she's making fun of me. She starts swinging the damn thing. I'm like, you better stop right now. Uh, just cause you know, that's Laura. Uh, but, um, but my wife knows, you know, who I was and what I did and what I was designed to go be. So being that is a part of my history, it'll never not be a part of me, even though I don't go demonstrate that or execute that now. But absolutely, if the right environments were to present itself, country was under attack, defended my family, friends, whichever else, that animal inside of me would absolutely present itself. And it was trained to be better than the other people. And so me, maybe, you know, this is where, so this is, I'm getting to the point of, 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 you know, what it is, is, you know, I still have, you know, some things that represent my time in the Marine Corps and those things aren't on display. And it's not because of any other reason is I didn't go do the, I didn't go do what I did in the PD and the Marine Corps because I wanted to have something on my wall that said, yay, look at me. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I always make that point, but that was who I was. But it's still who I was like that still is a part of my existence. You know, it is still a part of me of, you know, without going in and making sausage out of it and breaking down in the details of who I can be if I need to be because I was that person at what time at, at one time. So does that make sense? Kind of, you know, along that way is, sure. you know, I don't want to race who I am. Uh, but that was certainly a part of who I am. And actually, I'm very, not to say that, I don't want people to confuse it as I'm proud that I was a violent man. You know, I was proud that I was willing to go do violence on behalf of people in this country to protect these people. Sure. And it, it, it does take a unique person to be okay with going and doing that, you know. And we got to have that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but it is a part of my history. Right. And, 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 and it is funny every once in a while when Laura, we're just sitting here on the couch and watching the TV and, you know, and just hanging out. And I don't know, uh, whatever show comes up or a commercial on a movie, maybe it's a war movie or commercial for the Marines or whatever. And she'll just stop and she'll look at me and she goes, you know, I sometimes forget that that's also who you are. Right. And that that will never leave you. And that's what helped what make you who you are. So that's one of the reasons why I. I'm conflicted over, over that whole topic. And I really don't. And again, I mean, I, I don't have an opinion that supports one side over the other. It's just but I am in conflict over it. Right. Because I don't quite know how to view it or process it because I see and understand both sides. And I don't want it to be, a, you know, someone going, well, you just don't want to take one side. No, no. Actually, you need to get to know me a little bit better and understand that I am internally conflicted over, right. you know, you, do, do, do I stay in conflict or do I choose a side or, you know, which, whichever. So it is, it is a tough thing, but history is a part of who we are. And history is, you know, you know, tells the story and, and, and history is not always pretty. Right. Right. You know, it's like when, you know, you have people go, Hey, the Holy Bible. I'm like, Hey man, you really dive in. You're going to, you're going to read some not so pleasant things in, 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 in that book. And, you know, because things are not all rainbows and butterflies. Right. I mean, that's the that's the truth of the matter. Right. And I think part of the, where I struggle with it 
and why I'm I don't have an objection to taking down some of those statues is I don't want to erase the history. I don't want to not have it there. I want the story told. But in those public spaces, that's more than telling a story to me. It's more than recording history. There are ways you can keep those things and remember that history. But in those public spaces, that's something that's literally up on a pedestal, glorified, celebrated. And I'm not convinced that's the way to handle that part of history. Don't want to erase it. Don't want to forget about it. But are we still in 2021 celebrating that and having that? That, that sends a message about who the community and who the, who the people were there and how it works, um, I think. Yeah. And I, I want to commend you. I think you tap danced around that landmine way better. <laughs> <laughs> Way better than I did. <laughs> well, it was an unexpected question that just, you know, like I said, sometimes things pop up. Um, speaking of history, and, and it was really interesting because I didn't even realize how fast this time goes by. And I just want to get kind of a quick blurb of what you thought of the book uh, that I sent you. The, the, the Storm, Storm Before, Before the, Calm. the Calm by George Friedman, right? And, and it, Because I found it to be interesting. And I, I think I sent like 20 copies to people that I thought would... Not just read it and be like, blah, but read it, embed themselves in it, and then have an opinion of it. What were just the highlights of what, what did you think of that? Sure. And I, I want to say shortly after you sent it to me, I ran across something about Alice Walton that said she's reading it. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> Jeremy's onto something here. Um, this was an important book. I should read it. So I did, or at least most of it. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought it was really interesting. And to, in, in case you haven't, um, he talks a lot about geopolitics and his argument in this book is that there are two different kinds of cycles that basically dictate history and especially in the United States. I forget the title. One's so socioeconomic and the other's institutional cycles. Yes. And one's got to do with government. One's got to do with culture and, and society and other things. And I thought it was fascinating. Uh, these these cycles and it kind of gets it. Part of it though took me back to my days in political science that I rebelled against because I was, some of these theories I don't um, really follow. The first part of the book though, and I think there are three sections to it. The first part is a lot of history, and parts of it I was just in love with because he's talking about for one thing rivers, which. Um, pointing at a book here. I'm fascinated by rivers and I'm currently working on a research project about Fort Worth and water and the Trinity and other things. So I'm like, you go and we're talking about rivers and how they shaped history. Uh, and I think he was right on a lot of those things. Um, but what drove me nuts about it and what finally made me, I, I just, I can't, <laughs> um, is that first part. And to his credit, he is painting with a really broad brush. But he goes through this history of the United States in the first part of the book to set up his models of cycles. And there's stuff in there that just drove me nuts as a historian. Um, where I think part of the argument he's making is that the United States in some ways is ahistorical. That there's this thing that cropped up and it doesn't have any ties to anything before it. And oddly enough, he'll make a statement or he makes a statement sort of like that and then kind of goes into the history of what led up to this thing. Um, so I, I, it bothered me that he seemed to think that the United States just came out of nowhere in some ways and created this um, thing and this, this, that's driven by these cycles um, and didn't pay attention to 
that history and where it came from. And I'll try to I was afraid you were going to ask me about this, so I, <laughs> I, I tried to do some homework about this. Um, he makes a statement where about the United States government coming out of no place where there hadn't been one before. And I think I get what he's saying about that. And I think he's talking about the Constitution and the government that has gone from that point on. But that statement, whether or not he intended it that way or I misread it, really ran all over me because I was like – there, there was an entity that was organizing the Continental Army, and there were governments in those colonies that existed before that. Um, that's maybe being a little bit nitpicky. But part of the way they organized was in something called the Continental Congress that ran that war and that was organized under the Articles of Confederation for a period before the Constitution. Now, that government under the Articles of Confederation sucked and had a lot of problems, which is why they threw it out and wrote the Constitution. But it's not like there was nothing there. There wasn't a void before that. And at another point in the book, he talks about um, in the Jefferson administration and Thomas Jefferson's thinking about um, the country and, and the continent and geopolitics. And he references two laws passed by the um, the, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the Land Ordinance of 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So it's like, did you just tell me that there's no government before this one, but that government passed these laws that were critical to understanding this other stuff? So I... I Counterintuitive. I didn't know if it... I don't know where to go with that. Yeah. I, I, and I, I respect the guy. I know he's super smart and has written lots of books. And his book is on a commercial press and sells more than I'd ever dream of selling. So I, I, I don't want to do him a disservice. Um, but I, the stuff he was doing with history, to me, was kind of sloppy and contradictory. And that got in the way of me going along with the, the cycles model that he cooked up based on the history that they told me, which I thought was problematic. Um, so, I, despite what I just I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I encountered it. <laughs> and, I, and I think the, the section on the cycles holds up for me better than the stuff on the history in the first part of the book. And, the, and related to the cycles, one of the things, and I'm, I'm curious to hear you, to how you thought about this, um, so, so one, the ahistoricalness, the ahistoricity of it bothered me. And also, one of the things that just chaps me sometimes is I'll read people talk about inevitability. And I, I just don't buy that as a concept that there's like these historical inevitabilities. They're like, yeah, we can look back to 1776. It's inevitable that the, con the, the colonists were going to win that war. It's like, mm, no, there were some contingencies along the way. There were things ha that happened. And to me, it seems to take away um, some element of human agency and, and choices that people make. So the, I, I think the, the cycles are interesting. And I think he's on target. And when he's talking about those cycles, I'm like, oh, okay, I get that. And I actually talk about some of that stuff in my classes, but in different ways. Like one of the cycles is um, founding of the country up until the Civil War. It's like, Yep, that's definitely something, whether you call it a cycle or something else. There's that period where this nation was founded and it wasn't done yet. It took getting to the Civil War and fighting that war and getting past it and going through Reconstruction. Uh, I tend to think of it more as like a, a chapter, cycle, whatever. Um, but as I understood the book, it took 
too much of humanity and agency out of it and replaced it with these cycles that seem you know, like work uh, despite what people do. Um, and I'm trying to think there, there's something else related to that, but I, I, I'll hush. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I followed George Friedman for a long time. Um, and again, even writers that I like and I enjoy reading from doesn't mean I, I agree with a hundred percent of anything that they say. The, um, and I was really interested out of all the people I sent, and numerous people I sent this book to, and even other professors that I've known, but you're the only historian professor that I, I had sent it to. And I was curious on it because I was just like, oh, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, uh, footnotes. Yeah, footnotes, <laughs> verifications in there. And I was like, this is just going to drive Todd batshit crazy, right? <laughs> I was going to stay away from that, yeah. That, but that was one of the first things I did because I would read yeah. some of his claims. It's like, where? Why? Yeah, where did How? you get that? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and and so I was curious, you know, from a historical perspective, right, uh, of what you had thought about that. And then, you know, some of the – I do think that there are trends, right? Um, and, you know, but one thing I, I don't necessarily agree with is just because this might have been a trend multiple times before means that that's where the trend is going to take us next. Could mm, or right. could not because – I think if anything, 2020 showed us is that there's a lot of unpredictable things that are caused by nature that no one could have forecasted. Right. Right. Um, or like the running joke I make with people is, well, you know, I mean, how are we going to respond to COVID-20? And they're like, what's COVID-20? I was like, I don't know. We had 18, 17, 16, 15, and 14 before we had 19. So who knows what 20 looks like? And when you look at 20 years ago, this September, we were attacked as a nation by terrorists. And two decades later, we're still taking our shoes off at the airport. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just humans are, are interesting creatures in that they are responsive to things that they've seen. Right? Just like right now, what I face a lot in my industry is people going, well, the housing crisis of 2008. And I have to correct them. I'm like, no, it's lending crisis. It was actually not a housing crisis. I was like, and it was because we stopped building houses of why we have the shortage today. And then you add on a pandemic with supply chain interruptions and everything else, which is making it even more expensive and harder to build with shortage of labor and materials only augments that even more is, but people remember, people remember things that they experience more than they read it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then now we're, we're, we've, we're entering a very, we just came out of a very – we had, came out of an election with a lot of turmoil in it. And my expectation is the next election is going to be just as – have just as much turmoil, if not more, right? <laughs> and – but then people, you know, I, I look at them and go, by the way, one of the things I did enjoy about the book is this is not the first time we've gotten – had a lot of turmoil in some elections, right? right? Um but what does that do for us, right? Where does that set us? And, you know, where does that take us? And what do we do as humans? Because, you know, when we were in, leaving the first institutional cycle into the second during and after the Civil War, the level of technology then was not what it is today. And even then going from there till to the Great Depression and World War II for the second institutional cycle, 
is there was a lot of technology, maybe not computers and everything else, but as I got to learn in your class, you know, when we were, you know, studying, you know, of that industrial revolution era where, yeah, it's not a supercomputer, but things drastically changed, right? right? And we've had technology at our fingertips for so long now, um, several decades, you know, from the time you got your first email address to now we got supercomputers in our, in our, you know, pants pocket is, but the, the interesting thing even about technology is Elon Musk can give NASA a shuttled ride to the International Space Station, but you and I can't talk on a cell phone without it dropping a call, right? I mean, it's just, there's something interesting about that to me. And, and so, which tells me is there is a, still a technology gap that is still yet to be fulfilled that we don't even know. Some people may call it AI or, or, or whatever number of different things, but none of us, I don't think, really know uh, what, that, what that will look like and that, how will that shape us. Right. Because, you know, you know like when we were studying, you know, in your, in your classes, I mean, seven, 12-hour days was the norm to survive, how many people you know working seven, 12-hour days besides myself right now? Probably not a lot, right? Right. And that's just because I've got brain damage and there's something wrong with me that I just enjoy working. So the the thing I did take from the book is, yeah, there, there is trends that are recurring. And, and I think the responsibility of all of us is just not just Americans and citizens and humans is that instead of letting this trends or cycles get out of control it's really we, we could prevent it from doing that right now whether we do or don't only time is going to tell but we do have an opportunity to correct the course that we are currently on or else i do believe that things are going to get more violent um look at violent crime across the country right now it's higher than it's been since the 90s right and and that's a reality of it um, and if and if and if folks don't start learning to come together and communicate, try to see each other's perspectives, and be able to be like, hey, we need to be able to live with each other, even though we don't agree with each other, then things can potentially get incredibly violent. Now, do I think it's going to be the end of this country or anything else? You know, I mean, you know, people hate Trump, people hate Biden, whatever else. You know, one's a socialist, one's a dictator, one one's a whatever. You know, I'm mean, like, okay, but at the end of the day is it starts in our communities and in these micro communities, even within a city of Fort Worth inside of our own little smaller communities to be able to come together and be able to say, Hey, how do we get to a point where maybe we don't agree on things, but we can agree to work together. So that way we can make it a win-win for everybody moving forward. And so when I read the book is in my mindset is I wish a lot more people would read the book. So that way maybe it would force them to come to the table to say, Hey, what this book is talking about that could potentially happen. It's in all our best interests for that not to happen. Yeah. And, and that was kind of my take from it. And I agree that. with all that a hundred percent. And I'm all for the, the issues he brings up and getting people to think about it. And, um, even though I kind of had a reaction against how he treated history or wrote history, I one of the things I like about the book very much is 
it, it's out there and he's put, making a, a, a bold case for something. And it, man, it really got me involved with reading the book, thinking about it. It's like, does that really work? And, and uh, I think a good, to me, a good book doesn't necessarily answer a bunch of questions. It might, but it brings up questions. And if it gets people engaged, like you said, that, that's terrific. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely, gosh, maybe edit this out and put it back to my big <laughs> um, response earlier. It's like, I, I would not tell people not to read it by any means. I, and I, I'm glad I did. And I would recommend it to get people thinking about that stuff. So you've written a few books yourself, sitting here looking at two of them. You had another one in your bag that I already have. I keep on my shelf at my house in Colorado. So how many books have you written so far? Uh, three. Three? Okay. Four, four is in the gestational period. Oh. will be delivered sometime in the next three to seven years. So out of these three, and I know this is like trying to figure out which one was your favorite kid, is which one of these is your favorite kid out of the three you've written? Gosh, well, they all did different things for me. The, the first one, um, God's Country, Uncle Sam's Land, uh, Faith and Conflict in the American West, was my dissertation turned into my book. That was meant a lot to me. It involved some of that research I mentioned earlier where I was, was using Lakota language sources. Um, that got me tenure, um, and it was fascinating to me. And it was really about getting at what does the West mean through the lens of religion, and it, it, one of the things, it's a little tangent here, it bothered me when it came out and it got cataloged and put in the religious history section of the library under, <laughs> under the BLs in the Library of Congress cataloging systems. Like, no, it belongs in the E's or the F's with the American West stuff. So it's really about trying to get at what, what does the West mean? How, what has it mean to people? What's it mean to the nation? And when you throw religion in there and look at three um, case studies, and the, the book's partly about Mormons in the 1850s through the 1890s. It's about the Lakota ghost dance and the Wounded Knee Massacre. And it's about the Branch Davidians and the Branch Davidian tragedy that happened in 1993. And how these three religious groups found a place in the West and uh, in their religious experiences kind of pushed American society to the edge of its tolerance for what what can we handle? What are we willing to accept in American society? Plural marriage? No. Profits? No. Uh, trouble you know, converting semi-automatic weapons into fully automatic? No. And so, and, and that it, all those things happened in the American West, which has this reputation for being this wide open space where people can go be who they are and uh, enjoy maybe the greatest extent of liberty and freedom in the country. Uh, and these people got shut down largely because of their religious beliefs and the behaviors that it inspired in them, I thought was fascinating. So I had a blast doing that one and it really helped me professionally. The second one was an outgrowth of the first and that is a uh, inspiration and innovation, religion in the American West. That is a textbook. Uh, it was awful to write because it, and I got invited to do that because some people who were doing this series read the introduction in the first book and thought, wow, he really can spell this stuff out. Clearly we, we're going to do a, a, th a religious themed book on the West. Let's ask him to do it. And I foolishly accepted. Um, and writing a textbook is really tough because it's something it covers the entire span of American history from pre-contact and, and American Indian religious beliefs up until whenever it came out. I think I take that book up to about 2010 or so. So and there are a few things in there that I kind of knew about before I got into it, but I had to teach myself an awful lot to be able to fill in the gaps. So that thing took forever and it was like... 
uh, a, a root canal that went on for <laughs> five years. And it's a textbook, so it reads like a textbook. Um, it's not my greatest writing. Uh, and then the last one, um, Flood on the Tracks, Living, Dying in the Nature of Nebraska in the Elkhorn River Basin is kind of bizarre. It's uh, sort of an eco-biography of a river basin in northeast Nebraska. And as, as I was telling you earlier, it's sort of a flyover river and a flyover part of the country. But I think there's some lessons to be learned in there about how people came to live in that river valley, what the river has meant to them, how it was life-giving to them and important to the economic foundation of the communities in the basin. And yet, it takes a toll on them because like rivers do, it floods and it has killed people. So it's kind of like the river giveth and the river taketh away. Um, so there are those kind of stories in there and also sort of the evolution of how people have coexisted with the river from basically having to take it as it is to trying to channel it and control it to now the the policy. And this, I've seen this go on in other parts of the country, too. It's like we got to get out of the floodplain. It's going to flood. We're just going to keep paying for disaster relief and, and having trouble if we stay in there. So let's let's get out. Uh, and I like that one. Even though it's kind of about this remote place, uh, because I started it when I was in graduate school, and I could see the sort of prototype Todd in there, and there was some really primitive, not well done history in there. I picked it up after I had not worked on it for about 20 years, and it gave me a chance to appreciate how far I had come as a historian and a writer, and to take that story that was not very well done in the 90s and redo it and make it better so and and that helped me get promoted so <laughs> <laughs> so it's got that going for it as well uh, uh, but it turned out to be really fun to do and i could see uh, when i went back and re-researched it it's like wow how did i miss this how did i miss that and i found these photos and maps that i hadn't seen before and i could really use those to enrich the discussion about what did it mean to live here and I also realized as I found some of those sources, even if I had found them in the 1990s, I wouldn't have known what to do with them. So that was really gratifying to be able to do that. And that's the launching pad for my book on, on the book project I'm doing on Fort Worth because I'm going to do similar issues but expand that. And it's not just going to be flooding. It's going to be a microcosm of the Trinity Valley. And and it's not just going to be the river. It's going to be how how did water from uh, the springs and the wells that were the early water source uh, important to Fort Worth, too, if I get really artistic. Sometimes I think about if you were to follow a raindrop as it fell on Fort Worth in 1878, what would it tell you mm -hmm. as it landed on a dead animal in the middle of Main Street and then ran through and drained into the Trinity? And I, I, a, a guy I admire a lot, William Dubuis, writes about rivers and water because they water collects in low places. He says, consequences collect in low places. And, and that's kind of the entry point, not only into that book, but also into, I think, what's gonna, what I'm going to do with Fort Worth. It'll be sort of an environmental history of Fort Worth um, with a focus on water in a lot of different forms. So I, I'm really fascinated to sink my teeth into that one, just namely, <laughs> not just being a Marine because we were amphibious, right? You had to get comfortable with the water very quickly, but it was also the one resource that it, you, look, you can go without eating, but you got to have water. I still stay very hydrated to, to this day. I drink a lot of water. I drink a lot of alcohol, but I subsidize that with a lot of water as well. Um, but also the power 
of water. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we're done, I'll, I'll show you. I was, uh, um, um, Pagosa uh, did its hike uh, the other day with some friends that were in town, short hike, but it's, there's a waterfall that I took the video in slow-mo and it just, I know that's probably boring to a lot of people, but I think you'd have an appreciation I for it. It's gorgeous. When, when you see it, but just realize the power behind it right. is just, it's really fascinating of something we take for granted, how much power it really has. And if you think that you're in control of a lot of things, go dive into that waterfall and let me know how in control you are of things because you're not going to be because it has that much power to it. Um, so it's fascinating, fa- very, very fascinating. So I like to end cap all of these with not that 20 year old Todd would listen to present day Todd, but if you could turn back the hands of time and you knew that it would be worth it to go back for five minutes to have a conversation with 20 year old Todd and say, if there's this one thing that you do or don't do, what is that thing you would tell 20 year old Todd? Go see the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I, I I missed I missed out opportunities to do that, and then they started dying, and they're gone, and and I wish I had. And also go see the Almond Brothers more than you did. <laughs> uh, seriously, I think life lessons. Um, I I know at the time I was aware of the angst I felt about what am I doing? I got this education that cost a bazillion dollars, and I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and I feel pressure to do these things. Uh, I would tell, I would warn myself about what's coming in the 20s and say, this is going to be an interesting decade. It's going to be a struggle, but uh, your education is going on beyond college and it's going to change where you're doing your learning and how you're doing your learning and what you're learning about. And it's going to take a while to find your way, but just relax. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, it's going to work out. But that education is going to go for a while and at least for me, coming out of my 20s was, I'm trying to think where in the life cycle of a butterfly it was. It was out of the cocoon, but still kind of uh, gooey and and not there yet. And it took a lot of fumbling around. And I I dropped this on students a lot of times, especially when I have a lot of seniors in a class. It's like, God bless you. You're you're done and you've got through here, but there's, uh, be kind to yourself. And realize you got a lot more learning to go, and it's okay if you don't fall into your lifelong career uh, tomorrow morning after graduation. Well, I tell you, I have looked forward to doing this episode, namely because I, I really do value the the friendship and relationship we have since college. Right? Of I can still have these conversations and knowing that and and, it's, and, and and I purposely surround myself with people that I, I can have conversations with that I don't want to surround myself with yes people you know I want to get their perspective I want it that I know that if I if I say something that you don't agree with you go well I mean here's this and we but we can have and that's what I, I, and it goes back to what I've said several times to the show is that I think that's what this country is missing is the ability to sit down and have conversations yeah and so I I still value everything that I that I learned f- from you when I was in my undergraduate to how and a, a, as I articulated earlier in the show how much what you helped me learn and become plays a role in present day a decade and a half later so I do appreciate 
that uh, that you know on your final day that one day when you do retire from the mafiosa tenure track that you could say there was at least one person that I know of for fact that came through here and truly got value out of what you spent a lifetime learning to be able to go and demonstrate and teach in a classroom. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And sometimes I compare teaching, at least at the college level, to gardening in that I spend a semester or a couple semesters if somebody takes a couple of my classes, sort of uh, watering, feeding, fertilizing, weeding, um, and then the garden walks away and you don't see what happens. And it's been really gratifying to see how successful you've become and how much you've embraced learning. And uh, it's, it's like this, uh, I don't know, mighty oak tree or a huge tomato plant with lots of fruit on it. Pick your, pick your metaphor. Um, but it, it's really nice to get a chance to see how at least some people turn out and, and how great they're doing. So, Or like my wife says, I'm like a weed and really annoying. Or that. <laughs> But but you're a robust weed. That's it. I'm strong. Strong like bull, fast like deer. There you go. <laughs> so people want to learn more about your books. Uh, maybe they have questions. What's, what's the best way to uh, for them to learn more about your books in, on Amazon or anything else? This is your chance for a plug or you don't need to do a plug. It doesn't, you know, whatever you want, whatever you want to put out there. Sure. I think all those books are available through Amazon. Um, so they're out there. I've got a website at TCU. Uh, and I understand that when you send emails out, there's a chance to put some links in there. I can send you direct links to those uh, purchasing opportunities and to my contact information at TCU. Should you be interested in talking to me about history, I invite you to email me. And you'll be able to see this on the website under Todd Kurt Center, where you can click the Read More button by going to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an ED. You can click on Todd's episode, click the read more. We'll have links and everything else in there for you to find these fabulous books. And uh, always, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, go on the homepage, click to find a trusted professional, and we'll get you someone that can take care of you. Dr. Kurt said, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. What'd you think? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, You were right. The sales pitch proved true. (laughs) 